he's a pattern interrupt. And look, we just spent six minutes talking about Andy Kaufman. Like he's uncommon, right? So there's something to be said. Yeah, exactly. We're not exactly. talking about so, Tom Cruise. I mean, Tom Cruise is overproduced and almost perfect. And yeah, he's a big star, but he's not, you know, I'd rather be in the elevator with Jim Carrey than Tom Cruise. Stuck. Tom Cruise is an interesting one, though, because of the um, the whole Scientology thing. Yeah. I think that's why I don't want to be stuck in an elevator. <laughs> I can't. See, I, again, I loved, because Tom Cruise, um, I love Tom Cruise. He's he's done some of my my favorite ever movies. I love Mission Impossible. I grew up on Tom Cruise. Cause I I'm, do, too. I love even Top Gun, the, the recent one. I love all so of Mission Impossible. Yeah. But he's so perfectly produced. And compared to Andy Kaufman, I actually think if I was stuck in the elevator, I could predict what Tom Cruise would talk about. And even though I got questions about Nicole Kidman, separate point, uh, <laughs> Andy Kaufman would be odd. And I think, you know, weirdness is okay to be celebrated. And I'd rather be stuck in the elevator with someone weird so I can just have some fun and the time passes. I think with yeah. Tom Cruise, I just feel worse about myself because he just looks so damn good still. Yeah, it's uh, I know that whole Hollywood bubble though. Like, it's it's hard not to turn strange. I think in that sort of bubble. Yeah, big time. Who's your heroes? Big then? Time, like, man. who are your who's your like people in Hollywood that you've looked up to in your life? Hmm. You know, I don't know if I've got heroes of Hollywood. There's so many stories as I've gotten older that I've learned. Like, I didn't know Sylvester Stallone was that broke when he wrote Rocky. Mm. That he actually had to sell his dog. Oh, uh, really? I didn't and know then that. he actually made the movie and he went back and bought back his dog for like $50,000 or something, right? Uh but he believed that he should be in the movie so much because they didn't want him in the movie. I think um, I would look at that. I did not know. So he was Rocky in the movie, but he was also Rocky in real life. And mm. I thought that was incredible. Arnold Schwarzenegger, which I only knew from Terminator and all the movies he did, and he was funny. And his story of growing up in Austria and being so obsessed with a vision of where he wanted to go. Like he was a teenager and he said, I'm going to be Mr. Olympia. Then I'm going to move to America. Then I'm going to run for office. I mean, we're dreaming of like, you know, I want to go out Friday night and blow $20. Like that's how big my dreams were as a teenager. Mm. But I couldn't believe the Arnold Schwarzenegger on Netflix um, where he had a painted picture of his future at 14 years old. He's mm. never been to America, but yet he was obsessed with America. Then he became obsessed with being, uh, you know, Mr. Olympia. Then he became obsessed with getting into Hollywood. But if you listen to him deliver lines... Hollywood said, you're never getting in. Yet he became a blockbuster. Then he said, I want to get into politics. And he marries a Kennedy and yeah. he's governor of California. Like, are you fucking kidding me? Like that to me, if I'm looking at heroes, 
that to me is unbelievable. But again, I only found this out when I dug through the surface of two people who are probably seen in Hollywood as very average actors. They're certainly not Robert De Niro or Tom Hanks, but when you dig through it, incredible stories. Yeah. Yeah. Have you read um, Arnie's Total Recall book? A little bit, yes, but not as much as I should have. I only read – I should read more books. I read when I'm away, and I don't read enough when I'm not on vacation. Um, and plus this writing of a book has killed it for 700 days. Uh, but no, but, you know, again, I just thought Arnold Schwarzenegger was just a muscle head with a bad accent. But he's actually an incredible uh, human being with an ambitious vision that less than 1% of the population would even say out loud. But he did it. So massive respect for him. Yeah, his, um, I, I assume you've, you've watched the whole Netflix doc then. But um, it's, yeah, it, it's basically like, uh, it's, it's quite similar to the book. But obviously, the book has more detail. The book's massive, but yeah. um, it is—it's amazing though. Like it, you're, you're totally right. It really like, is. For him, it's—I um, I get his newsletter like every week. He's—he does this like motivation newsletter, and okay, he—he uh, he did one the other day, and it was like he was telling people to like put down their phone and get off their get off their machine is what he he used because he was like, mm. the more time you spend reading other people's stories that's time that you could be spent visualizing your own. Wow. Which I think is a good point. Wow. Very good. Very mm. cool. And, you know, this guy has done it, but you got to dig below the surface of people like him, right? Because um, you just don't know this part of it. So I think everyone's got a story and people love hearing stories. And I'm still, I'm still a sucker for a great story. I really am. Like, if you want to engage me, a story is going to do it. And well, tell you what, we'll get to your story. G get, just give me, can you okay. just give me two seconds? I've just realized my tumble yeah. dryer has come on. So I, need to, I just need to turn it off because it's, it's annoying me in the background. I don't think you can hear it, but no let me problem. turn it off. Two it's seconds. all good. So, all right, edit that out. Yeah, it's just, it was just annoying me. It was just humming in the background. And um, it, like, I just, I, it's taking away like me and my ability to actually hear you, especially when it starts kicking into gear. So, um, yeah, no problem. What'd you call it? A tumble dryer? Yeah. Um, do you know what? It's funny. Like with words, I always forget what's the English version and what's the American, because we're so Americanized here, especially in my generation, because well, we grew up watching friends and stuff. so are we, by the way, Canada's, we are completely Americanized. True, true, true. We fashion TV politics music everything is we are we are more americanized than we are canadian like it's just it's it's in our dna now right even if you don't want it to be because it's a america's become a very different place these days very divided what so what what is canada's like i actually don't know much about canada now now i think about it like where did canadians come from yeah believe it or not we came from the UK is kind of our origin. So my origins would be in Ireland, which is why my accent, when I go to the States and speak, people think I'm Irish. 
because okay. they hear my accent and they think it's Irish. So I have a hard time explaining it. And sometimes a lot of Americans don't understand the geography of the world very well. They understand their own geography very, very, very well. Yeah. Uh, I just say, yeah, I'm from Ireland. I just move along. <laughs> <laughs> you don't even correct them. <laughs> No, it's just, you know, then I got to explain where in Canada I'm from. And then they're going to ask me why I don't say A at the end of every sentence. And then they're going to say, I know someone from Canada. And I'm like, oh, Jesus Christ, forget it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So are your parents Irish then? Uh, No, it would have been maybe five generations before. So, um, no, my parents would have been. Canadian also. So you're um, so in Canada. Where did you grow up? Because your your accent. I've I've got a couple of Canadian friends myself, and your accent is a bit different than than theirs. Yeah, it is. So there's if you look at one side of Canada is Vancouver, BC, right on the edge, right above Seattle and California, right on the edge of Canada. And if you go all the way to the other side. The middle would be Toronto and Montreal, which you would know. And if Mm. you keep going east, I'm on the east coast of Canada, the very opposite side. And it's a province called Newfoundland and Labrador. It's called what, sorry? (laughs) It's called Newfoundland and Labrador. Okay. So you're going to have to Google that. You might want to Google that now just so we we can get you over the shock of it. So again, this is why I wouldn't tell someone from America because it's like, now I got to explain. You said what? Newfoundland yeah. and Labrador or Newfoundland? Is it two places? No, our province, which is like a state or a county would be Newfoundland and Labrador as one name. <laughs> is that, um, I might be, uh, as you can probably, I don't know if you know, what, I can't remember if we discussed this, but I'm a massive BoJack Horseman fan. And um, it's like an adult animation on on Netflix for anyone who doesn't know. But um, they they have like a joke that one of them lives on like the Labrador Peninsula. Is that the same thing? It might be. It could be Labrador. Again, you're going to do some homework on this because I think when you. We are kind of this. um, Island on the East Coast and we have a very unique dialect so even within the uk i know this from being over there you can go to certain parts of london west end east end and the accents change yeah it's and in america it can change too if you go to texas versus mississippi and then boston and new york people change accents newfoundland where i'm from newfoundland labrador would have a very unique accent compared to people from toronto and most people feel the Irish in our accents. Yeah, I, I don't know if I'm like, you know when someone tells you something and then you start thinking it, I don't know if I can now hear like an Irish twang because you've told me that, or if, if know, that's actually you. You're going to want to turn back on your tumble dryer. It's going <laughs> to... <laughs> it may yes. throw you off because now, now I'm going to slow it down even more and I'll talk like an American. Yeah. What, what? So I think what we started talking about was you asked me what um what I call a tumble dryer, 
So yes, yeah. So yeah. what do you call it then? I love, in- by the way, I love UK words because um, I I was part of bringing a tennis coach over here when my daughter was a competitive tennis player, and he was from Scotland. And mm. at one point, when he was a junior, he actually won a set off Roger Federer, which was incredible. Wow. When he was a teenager. So he was a guy that we brought over here. And I remember when I picked him up at the airport and I got his luggage, he said, I'll just put that in the boot. And I'm like, the boot. (laughs) And he was coming over during winter and he also had a pair of boots. And now I said, so now I got to put boots in the boot. Like it's all a bit. So I'm fascinated with language and words. And I love when I talk to people like you or Mike Herberts or Benjamin Dennehy, who I talked to earlier this week, because I always leave with five new words. And one of them is always wanker. I don't know why. Maybe it's because I'm involved. But um, and I'm watching this show called Ted Lasso. Yeah. um, Where if you haven't seen and it's like. I just love the UK. I actually connect more on LinkedIn with people from the UK than anywhere. So I just got this connection with, I think we got the same strange humor. Um, I don't know. It just feels like I'm kindred spirits with people over in the UK uh, like you. I just connect better, but I love the words you use. I just love it. But, you know, I say words that you're going to say, what did you just say? And it's cool, right? Yeah, well, like I said, I, I sometimes forget what what ones are initially um, English and which ones are American, just because I grew up on, like most people, I grew up on American television, grew up watching Friends, South Park, Family Guy, you know, America. all my favorite bands and artists are American, so... Yeah, I know. Yeah. It's, um, I know. It is very interesting. But um, sales... Um, <laughs> So how oh, did way you to actually... ruin the conversation. What <laughs> way to throw a bomb into the conversation. Let's talk about sales. We have to. Um, <laughs> but how did you get into sales? Like, what was your, like, your introduction into sales? Then? Did you like fall into it like everyone else? Or? Yeah, unfortunately, yes. I mean, um, I joke about this, but it's true. My mother always, we got, I got uh, two brothers and a sister. <clears throat> and I remember mom finally admitting at some point in life that she wanted one of us to go to med school. Like somebody, please amount to something in this family. <laughs> and she always hoped somebody was going to go to med school. My, do- my uh, sister was a nurse, so she was by far uh, the most admired in my mother's eyes. And... <clears throat> Of course, I was the youngest in the family of four, so I was the last great white hope. And uh, here I am, I landed in sales. So what's funny is um, on the inside of my book, I think I can get this right, I, I, I dedicate the book to my mom, who's 87. And I said, um, there was four kids in my family and mom wanted someone to go to med school. Mom, I would have been a terrible doctor. People would have died from an ingrown toenail. 
But you know what? I became a salesperson and my mom still loves me. What do you know? Thanks, mom. Mm. Something to that regard. So, yeah, accidentally fell into it 100%. I mean, in my household, when the phone rang, and we had landlines back then, uh, the phone rang supper time. I saw the way my parents and my grandparents treated salespeople. So why would I ever want to be a salesperson? I mean, it was, it was the last place I would ever want to go. Uh, the phone rang. My father, who was an incredible human being, answered it, said, no, nope, she's not home, hung up. And I said, Dad, who was that? Ah, someone looked for your mother, salesperson. So, no, I didn't aspire to be a salesperson, 100% not. I went to university. I got a concentration in marketing and business, and I worked with an ad agency for the first 10 or 12 years of my life. Uh, so marketing is what I loved, and I loved advertising and communication but to me sales is communication and marketing is about making change happen and sales is about making change happen so i think i rationalized in my head that i landed in sales and it's okay but i accidentally fell into it because i lost my job in 2001 and i became an entrepreneur and I've never not been an entrepreneur ever since 2001, but it usually is triggered by a bad event <laughs> and you land there and you find your way through it. But um, I was accidental. I'm an accidental salesperson. Yeah. I don't think I've ever met anyone who actually like grew up wanting to be a salesperson. I think um, <clears throat> I feel like Zig Ziglar, someone I read, some sales book I read ages ago, like, they said they always wanted to be in it, but no one really wants to get into it. Like my first sales job was, so I was, um, I actually studied to do like nutrition, like uh, personal training and nutrition. And I was going to do sports science, but um, I feel like every, at least in the UK anyway, but every um, like town has in the UK, like one tele sales place, no loads, high churn, whatever like everyone's worked out for at least two months like even in right. this, like the summer um so we, we had that it was for an energy company and you do like cold calling on a dialer for like their terrible broadband or their um electrical wiring insurance and uh right. so I it's not seen so david yeah Sorry, it's not on. seen as a noble profession right like mm. you know i don't know anyone when i was in grade four or five that was drawing pictures with crayons of a salesperson. They were saying, I want to be an astronaut. I'm from Canada. So we all wanted to be hockey players, but I didn't see anyone dressed and drawing a salesperson because it wasn't seen as a noble profession. And you also saw how your parents and your grandparents treated salespeople. So, mm. Yeah. I mean, there's so much life scripting. And honestly, um, the sales profession hasn't done a whole lot to change that. So you've got to treat it like being a professional. And I can see why a lot of people wouldn't go for it. But um, I can say that I treat it as a surgeon would or a doctor would or an engineer would. 
I treat it as being a professional, but that means you got to show up like a professional. And the problem is that most of the training is so poor. I think you've got good people doing bad training, which equals a broken person. These aren't mm. bad people. I just think there's just bad training or no training. And I didn't have any training either. I just became an entrepreneur. And my business partner at that time, neither of us wanted to sell. There was two of us in a basement. And we drew a coin of like, you know, flipped a coin of like, who wants to sell? Because I picked heads and I lost. So I had to go out and sell. <laughs> and he got yeah. to stay behind a computer using Photoshop or whatever was on the Mac at that time. And I lost the bet. And welcome to sales, Kevin. That's so funny. Your life could have been so different with a flip of a coin. Yeah, well, I've had several flips of the coin, but that was the first flip of the coin. But, you know, most people, well, I don't know one entrepreneur that has ever started a business to be a salesperson. They started it because they believed they had something to offer the world that was going to solve a problem and they were passionate about it. And then they put all their effort into a beautiful website, beautiful logo. They're all happy. Mm. No one told them they had to sell. But they wake up and realize this is not uh, a real-life version of Kevin Costner and Field of Dreams, and they just show up. And all of a sudden, they go, oh, shit. I didn't know I had to sell. But you do. So entrepreneurs uh, do what they do because they love it, but no one told them. They had to sell. And there's so many gifted people that I see out there that are hiding in the shadows. And they're so nervous and riddled with anxiety because they just don't know how to sell. And their perceptions of selling is exactly what we talked about. And really, that's the kind of person I want to connect with because I've been doing it for 23 years. And I was that person that had bad worldviews on selling. I had a lot of life scripting. But at some point, I was either going to be one of those statistics that I was going to be out of business. And selling to me is your duty. It's your professional duty that if you have a problem that you can solve and you don't sell because you can't get out of the way yourself or get out of your own head, mm. you failed as a professional. And selling doesn't need to be a dirty word. No, ab absolutely. Like, it's for me, it was. I think my if someone said to me selling when I was like a teenager, just before I got into it, and you know, shortly after I had my first sales job, it was almost like you're annoying people and pushing a product on them. Like there's no like consultative approach to it. Um right. it was very pushy, very in your face, calling people when they don't want to speak, and then almost convincing people to try and um buy something that they don't really need. That that was my perception of it which wasn't helped by right. my first telesales job. But it, it's funny, actually, you mentioned this because someone DM'd me the other day. So obviously everyone gets DMs on, on LinkedIn. I had this, um, she's like a digital marketer or something, right? But she she sent me a message, like a, a, the first right. DM. And it was like, um, yeah, it's very salesy, you know, as, as you can, basically the opposite of what you, you, you preach, Kevin. It was like that. and um, mm -hmm. And then she sent me another one like two days later and 
it 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 basically said i spoke to a salesperson and i hate selling um so please ignore my last message and i had a little conversation with her and i was just like i was like i'm I'm not interested in buying your your thing it's not relevant to me to be honest with you but what, what do you mean you hate selling i don't want to I, I was like you need to sell for your business to like that's it's not yeah. a bad it's not a bad thing to sell it's just it's just how you're doing it right. it's a bad way to sell but i was like selling is it's the lifeblood of all businesses if you can't sell your product the, you're your business is going to fail. And uh, it was quite an interesting conversation. Well, here's what's interesting, David, because I have people all the time, freelancers that operate from their kitchen table, small business owners of a $3 million business and CEOs that say, well, selling's not really my thing. Yet I smirk every time they say this to me because it sets up so well my next conversation which is but you're selling every single day and they go Mm -hmm. no i'm not i said so if you're at home and you want to watch your favorite netflix show what do you do well i i kind of plant the seed and lobby for it of course you do you're selling you're making change happen if you're going out with your friends and you want to go watch the football game somewhere and you want to go to your favorite bar, you start planting that seed early. You're selling. If a cop stops you because you're speeding and you want to find a way to get out of that ticket, you're influencing, you're selling. If Mm. you forgot the receipt and you're bringing it back to the store and you know you need the receipt, you're going to try to influence that situation. If you got yourself a job or got yourself a raise, you had to have a communication to to change. So guess what? You're already selling. You just didn't know it because it felt like a conversation. So let me ask you, if it could feel as comfortable as convincing your spouse to watch your Netflix show that she doesn't really like, and it felt that comfortable. Do you believe it could happen? And most people don't, but that's how comfortable it should feel. Most people don't even know what they're selling. That's the problem. They actually don't know what they're selling. They think it's the thing they sell. Yeah. And you could look at my life now, the last seven years, and I sell business insurance. I mean, when I told my daughter I was leaving the ad agency business, and going to the insurance world, it was like she wanted a new dad. It was like her life was going to end. Dad, you cannot do this. Uh, but I know what I'm selling, and I'm not selling insurance. I'm selling business owners the ability to avoid the 3 a.m. sweats. And that's what I ask people. When people say, what do you do? Do you think I'm going to say I'm an insurance broker? I mean. They'll, they'll race out of the room and go into witness protection program from me. When someone says, what do you do? I say, I help business owners avoid the 3M sweats. And they can't help themselves but kind of go, what? What does that mean? Open the conversation. Um, every time I present to a group of business people, I always, this is how I begin almost every presentation. I always ask them to look at the person next to them 
and try in eight words or less to tell them what you do to be interesting. And you know this. If you said, I'm a recruiter, no one's going to find that interesting, right? That's just going to be hmm. another white dot and a sea of white dots. So when I go through this exercise, 99% of the time, it happens. I say, did anyone hear anything that blew their mind and was totally irresistibly interesting? And no one ever says anything. And I present it to... <laughs> a business class that was together with a med school class as part of a fundraiser. And a girl put up her hand. She goes, actually, this guy next to me just said something that was totally interesting. And I said, okay, was it eight words or less? She goes, yeah. She said it was three words. Okay. And everyone is like, what did he say? And he said, I fix Dicks. <laughs> and of course, I would do what she said to him, which is, what do you mean you fix dicks? I'm like, he said, well, I'm going to be a specialist in urology. I'm going to be a urologist and deal with men's health issues. Now, if he had said, I'm in men's health, it would be boring. I'm a urologist. Okay. Bit interesting, but not. I fix dicks? You can't ask. I don't care if you're offended or not. You've got to kind of understand what that means. Yeah. That's pretty so good. part of what we've got to do is understand what we're selling. And he knew what he was selling. I mean, it was pretty cool. I think he framed it up in a really cool way. And uh, again, people don't really understand what they're selling and they lead with the thing. And entrepreneurs are the worst at this because I am one, we're so goddamn passionate about what we sell. We can't believe the world isn't as interested as we are. And we can't help but lead with the product or service. And they're already tuned out. It's dead on arrival. It's over before it starts. And the only way to start, and this is the human condition, is you've got to start with problems. I fix dicks is a problem. <laughs> you've got to start with the problem. And you got to take a chance and bring a hypothesis to the table. And if you lead with problems, people pay attention. If you lead with your products, dead on arrival. But it's yeah. very hard to tell an entrepreneur that. Uh, and that's why the more passionate they are, the more it's harder for them to get some of these messages. And I yeah. was once there. So I was there. So I am speaking because this is the after picture of Kevin Casey. The before picture of Kevin Casey post-2012 was everything that you wouldn't like about sales. So I've lived that life. I don't want to go back there. So how did you, like, what was the turning point then? Because obviously that's, that's quite a big time period there. What, like a, 11 years, you flip the coin in 2001, you go into sales, you've got 11 years, and then you pull the handbrake on and do a U-turn from the sounds of it. Um, what, what caused that? What was that process like? Well, let's just call it a sudden impact. Um, April 18th, 2012. You remember big dates in your life. You remember when you got married. You remember when your kid was born. You know, some people remember the day JFK was shot. Um, 
I remember April 18th, 2012. Uh, and up to that point, selling was hard, but I did it. And, you know, we grew an agency to $5 million and I was relatively successful, but I was exhausted. I was chasing more lies than leads. Uh, and on that day, something tough happened. And I talk about this in the book because it, it is a turning point. Um, we were in the final stages of this long process. No one treats anyone worse than ad agencies, by the way, maybe salespeople, but ad agencies had to do so much spec work up front. Mm. Um, no other profession does more. But, you know, back then in 2012, this would have doubled the size of our agency. We were in the final stages of it. It was almost a routine call. I didn't even have my creative people on this call. It was a routine call just about some final details. It was between us and another agency. And um, they were saying glowing things about me. There was four people. It was over a conference call. We didn't have Zoom or technology back then. It was a conference call unit, one of these little octagon units that sat on a table. And they were throwing confetti all over me. And of course, as a salesperson, you love hearing that because we already feel like we disappointed our mother and didn't go to medical school. So you're looking for anyone to make you look smart. Mm. Uh, and they're saying, you know, Kevin, you guys did an incredible thing. We love the creative. You really knocked it out of the park. We're really impressed. We love how agile your team is. You brought some fresh thinking. So I'm thinking it's a done deal, Dave. I'm feeling like I'm already popping the cork of the champagne in my head. And I can't wait to run out to the team and tell them. And as we went through the little goodbyes on the phone, I hit a button on this awkward unit. And I thought it was the hang up button. I thought it was the red hang up button. And it was the mute button. And um, I can still feel this uh, moment as I talk about it. But at that moment, when I hit the mute button, I realized a couple of seconds later, they were still on the line. They thought I was gone. And of course, maybe this was morally wrong for me, but I'm a curious person. So I stayed on the line. I didn't say anything. I wanted to hear what they were going to say, whether that's right or wrong, whether some listeners would have done that. But I wanted to hear what else they would say. <clears throat> and the same people that were throwing confetti at me 10 seconds before were now like schoolyard bullies and they didn't know I was there, but all I heard was, you know what? They're a good agency, but I think the devil we know is better than the devil we don't. I don't think it's worth switching. Let's stick with the incumbent that we got. And then another voice came up and said, see if you can pump Kevin for some more information on production costs so we can use that to go back and save some dough with our current one. And I think there was one more line. By that time, I was so low, I just basically hit the right red button. I hung up. And at that moment, I was angry. I probably never felt as low in my life. I felt unfit to be a leader of 16 people that trusted me and put them through hundreds of hours of work. But I also realized that the way I was selling didn't allow people to be truthful to me. And 
because Kevin Casey was so needy and aggressive, they actually couldn't tell me the truth. And I wondered how many other times this has happened in my life where I thought it was a sure deal and then people disappeared into the night. So instead of blaming those four people who were actually going to get the first four copies of my book, by the way, haven't told them that, um, I actually looked at myself in the mirror saying, it's because you created this. And I said to myself at that moment, I cannot live like this for another 20 years. I don't like the way I'm selling. I don't like the fact that people can't tell me the truth because they know I can't handle the truth. And it was that moment on April 18th, 2012, that I started to think about if I'm going to stay in this business and I'm going to sell, I got to do things complete opposite. And about five nights later, I remember seeing an old Seinfeld episode of George Costanza when he actually decided to do the opposite because everything in his life wasn't working out. Jerry said, George, if everything decision you ever made was wrong, then if you do the opposite, it has to be right. So George sees this girl sitting over at the bar that's way above his pay grade. Like he would not have a chance at this girl. And Jerry said, just go over. And he said, I'm unemployed. I live with my mother. I'm bald and I'm short. Like, what would I say to her? He said, just do the opposite to what you'd normally do. And he goes over and he goes over to the girl and said, hi, my name is George. I live with my mother and I'm unemployed. And everyone just waits. And there's millions of fans watching the TV kind of going, how bad is this going to be? And she just looks at him and says, hi. My name is Victoria. And they start dating. And in a weird kind of way, I had this idea of opposites, which in the book I call Costanzas now, instead of commandments, I just call them the 14 Costanzas. And I didn't plan on doing this, but I just started trying different things that were opposite of what I was taught. And some failed miserably, David. Some were really, really, really bad. And they're not in the book, (laughs) but they're in my memory. And some work really, really well. And I think when COVID hit, I said, I'd like to just try to codify these and start to put them into some kind of form. And I started to use them in my sales team. And what ended up is I've got 14 Costanzas named after George Costanza that are opposites of the way I was taught in sales. And if that can help someone that feels uncomfortable about selling to try some of these things, then um, I think selling doesn't need to feel like a life sentence. It could actually feel like a life. That's my story. Yes. Awesome. Nice. It's great because it's, I think a lot of people believe that to be good in sales, you need to be loud. You need to be extroverted. You need to have, the gift of the gab as as people say in the uk like the ability to to talk and talk and talk uh which just isn't true like some of the i'm I'm sure you you've realized it as well but like i mean how many people have you met that are like deep introverts quiet people analytical people that are excellent salespeople? well here's so don't believe kevin casey or david believe 
really smart people. Um, the Wharton School of Business, Adam Grant did a study. And he actually, I think it was well over a thousand salespeople in the SaaS industry. And he measured whether they were an introvert, hiding in the shadows, extroverts, gift to the gab, as you would say, you know, doing tequila shots from their stomach on stage. And in the middle of this is a term that I never knew before. 63% of the population are what they call ambiverts. So they're not hiding in the shadows. They're not doing tequila shots on stage, but their people are somewhere in between. Scientifically, those people performed way better than extroverts. And obviously better than introverts who couldn't pick up the phone or speak to a human. And the point is they ask better questions. They actively listen. And they're better at being detached from the outcome. And they actually see themselves as problem solvers and not product pushers. So to the people listening this that see themselves as more introverted, you're probably an ambivert because that's where 63% of the population is. The good news for you is you actually have all the DNA to be an amazing salesperson. So that excuse is now over. What's next? Because mm. part of my process with people is to get all this head trash out of the table. And I hear people say, well, Kevin, you're a born salesperson. No, Michael Jordan was not a born brilliant basketball player. Tom Hanks was not born to be Forrest Gump. It's a learned behavior. So that excuse doesn't work. And Michael Jordan and Tom Hanks would be insulted to think it came easy to them. They put mm. a lot of practice in. Ambiverts are the best salespeople. And it's a learned skill. And by the way, you're already selling. So I got to get rid of all that head trash first. The whole first part of my book is on learning. So if on selling is the book, every chapter, I got to wind all that shit out of their head first. Because there's no use showing them the opposites unless I get rid of all the reasons why they think they're not going to be a good salesperson. And it's a dirty word. And it needs to be done like Grant Cardone. No, it doesn't. It doesn't need to be done like that. Because what about if you could sell the way you'd like to be sold to? That's on selling. Mm. Yeah, I think it's I, I think it's the way things are going as well. Because let, let me ask you this actually. So in the last twenty years, how have you seen like selling change? Well, there is the hype hasn't changed. I mean, um, I actually think if anything, the hype has gotten worse. And I think people are more skeptical than ever because there's become so much technology to make things look and feel better. And now we've got 80 different ways to get through to people where the bad salespeople used to only have one way, which was a landline or a door <laughs> coming mm. door to door. Now they got 80 ways to interrupt our lives. Um, so to me, in the last 20 years, there's been a power shift. And I think the power shift is because most sales, most buyers can already do the research in advance. Everything is there. 
And if you look at the way people buy cars, they're already 80% down the road before they go into a dealership. Yet the bad salespeople at dealerships start as if they don't know anything. So for me, the great opportunity is to actually show up with something that's going to let them know that I might not be a fit for them. And when you admit early on and tell people, no one does this, by the way, people write about it. People know it's right. But when you say to someone, David, if we kind of get into this and you're feeling like this is not really connecting and it's not really the way you want to solve this, I want to let you know I'm totally comfortable with hearing no. Are you comfortable telling me no? And people kind of go, wow, okay. Uh, yeah, I've never heard that before, but thank you. But then you got to have some status and you got to flip it the other way, which is to say, and listen, as we talk and I ask you some questions, some are going to be uncomfortable. You don't have to ask them, but I need to answer them, but I need to ask them. If I feel like I'm not the best person to help you do that and I can point you in a different direction, would you be offended? People go, wow. No. Like, do you do that sometimes? I said, yeah. I mean, honestly, be quite frankly, three out of 10 times I can help people. Seven out of 10 times, I might just give them a little piece of advice to solve it on their own. Salespeople don't act like that. And mm. I wish I had have done that, David, when I was 25 or 30, but it's taken me. I'm 55 now. The only thing I can't get back is time. And I have to get to the truth because I don't want to waste time. Because if I'm wasting time, I'm taking it from the other things in life I do want to spend time with. And when I went from seeking the truth over seeking the sale, it became a conversation to me. And I never feel like I have rapid heartbeats anymore or I'm stressed out making a call because I know seven out of 10 times I'm not going to be the fit anyway. So I want to lose faster. <laughs> and that is such a weird thing for me to say. I played sports my whole life and it was been about winning. Now my life is about how do I lose faster? And how do I let people know it's okay to say no to me? And I'm not one of those needy people that are going to chase you around. And I just hope the people that maybe read my book can find it a lot faster than I found it because it took me a long time to get there. And I wasted a lot of sales calories and I didn't like the way I looked in the mirror with the way I sold. So uh, I don't have it all figured out and I still learn every day. I record every sales call. I still do. And I still catch myself interrupting people, not letting them finish their sentences. My tonality sometimes is more like a CrossFit instructor than a TED talker. I always catch myself. I am a work in process. It's just, this is draft number 573. Yeah, I think we all are. I, and f for me as well, I was talking to someone about this the other day, actually, um, about why I still read and reread sales books and just books about, you know, psychology, that sort of thing. And for me, I was saying like, sometimes I, I, I read them because I know I've, I've, I know that tip or I know that technique or whatever, 
but I forget it or you fall into bad habits. And, you know, 100%. obviously, you know, you, you like to think you get better over time, but then sometimes you, you, you are human. Like you do, like you said, fall back into things that you were actively trying not to yeah. do two years ago. And then suddenly you're doing right. it again. And it's, I feel like this is the problem with, with like sales training as well, because a lot of sales trainers are just teaching stuff that they were taught 15 years ago. 100% repackaging it. Mm. It's, you know, it's a weird here's one. the hard lesson I learned, David. And I, I get a sense. The reason you're rereading things is the same reason I did. I used to believe if I read it five more times, I would believe it. Then I would do it. And that order is actually totally messed up. The hard part about some of the Costanzas, the 14 of them in my book, and I can't help you with this. This is just the way it is. You've somehow got to find the courage to do it first and then believe it. Because if you wait to believe it first, you're just going to keep practicing and thinking you're going to do it, but you're not going to do it. And I am very big on doing versus IQing. And with my team, I still make sales calls with my team. And I've got a 26-year-old that I've just hired from the banking world. And I think he was shocked because I'm an owner of a brokerage. And he said, you're, you're going to make sales calls with me on Wednesday? It's my favorite two hours of the week hanging out with this guy. And we go tit for tat making sales calls. And guess what? Some of mine bomb still. And that makes him believe, wow, I thought this guy was perfect. And I thought mm. everything just works out for him. No, it doesn't. There's still people that hang up on me. There's still people that lie to me. But I get their way faster. And the only way for me to continue to do is get the reps in. So I don't want to be a sales guy that wrote a book about how I used to sell. I want to be a sales guy that writes a book on how I sell today. And I didn't write this book, you know, overlooking Cabos in Mexico talking about how I used to sell. I wrote it at five in the morning to seven in the morning for 700 days straight. That felt like hell. And I felt massive imposter syndrome and I hated the book so many times but I sell every day and I work every day and I haven't even sold anyone anything. People have asked me, would you do coaching? It's like, I don't have anything to sell you. I'm like the anti-sales person at times. It's bizarre, but I'm doing it because I had to get this book out of my head. I have no idea if it's going to do well or not. I hope it does. I hope it helps some people out that were like me in 2012. Um, but I have no idea. And I, at 55, and because I don't have to worry about money anymore, I don't really care how it does. But I won't be playing the Amazon bestseller game. I can promise you that. Yeah, it's... Uh, I'm sure it's going to do very well, by the way, based on following your content for a while. Because you, your content well, really helped me. Well, in sales, if you care, if you desire less, it actually happens. I am so detached from the outcome of the book. I just want to get mm -hmm. it done for my own reasons. If it does well, great. I'm delighted. It's not going to really change my life that much. Writing a book is maybe 
one of the worst business models in the world of making money. And by the way, I thought I could do this book alone. I had to pay some super smart people to keep me accountable. Um, so I need coaching constantly still. And in 2019, Benjamin Dennehy, I felt like I was kind of losing my edge a little bit. I went and spent a bunch of money with Benjamin, who I think is one of the best sales trainers around. I don't agree with everything he does, by the way. We've had lots of battles on certain things. But you know what? Uh, it's no different than a football player. We need to get the reps in and we need coaching. And I don't have all the answers, but I knew after 758 days, if I don't let this book go to print, I'm going to hang on to it for another 700 days. So it's not the perfect book. But it's a really a book designed for people who think selling isn't their thing, but they love their business and they got to sell. And this is going to help them be a good salesperson, a salesperson that they can look themselves in the mirror and be proud of, a salesperson where they don't need to pretend to be somebody else. But I can tell you what I can't do. I'm not going to say you can 10x your sales or bring in 200 clients this month. Ain't me. And the hard work is not the book. It's actually taking some of those 14 Costanzas and having the courage while other business owners and salespeople roll their eyes and laugh at you and say you're going to look silly, having the courage to do it. And if you don't do that, this book isn't going to help you. Mm. With, because you touched on it a bit there, um, and it's something that I took a while to learn, especially like, because I, I did sales um, for like five, six years before I did recruitment. Um, and I learned eventually how you you can't like, even if you think you've pressured someone into a decision, they're, they're not, they're, you know, they can, they'll just change their mind off the call anyway. It's that, it's that old quote of like, I think you mentioned Benjamin Tenney as well. He, he likes this quote. Um, a man convinced against his will was of the same opinion still. Which is so true. 100%. Yeah. Um, and I suppose there are like, you know, very specific contexts or maybe before, um, if we go back sort of like 10, 15 years before people could do mass research, you, you maybe you could sort of corner someone into, into a cell on the phone or something, you know, look at the Wolf of Wall Street, for example. But it's, um, I, I think what would be really interesting because a lot of people struggle with this and you know, your target audience absolutely struggle with this is the anxiety of selling and of cold calling specifically. Cause you know, people can, they don't struggle with sending emails, but they do struggle with yeah. picking up the phone. So what advice do you give those type of people then? Well, I've dealt with these people because I am one of those people <laughs> and there's this term, I don't know where I heard it, and sometimes when I read my own book, because I'm actually reading the final draft now, I can't remember writing some of these chapters, like it's that odd when you get deep into it. But there's a term I used in chapter eight called sales incest. And I know what entrepreneurs do, because I was one. We join a business group, or we join a bunch of other entrepreneurs who suck at selling. And we all gather together and we crack open a beer 
or drink a cup of coffee and we all moan and grind and whine about all the things that aren't working and we blame it on something else. And then we share ideas that suck to other people and then they take it and they try it and it still sucks. So mm. you're surrounding yourself in this sales incestuous community and it's like real incest. The more you do it, the uglier it gets. And what happens is you're looking for cues of these other business owners. And what I would tell somebody is this. If you're going to read my book, and there's lots of great books out there, please do not tell some of those other business owners you're reading it because they're going to tell you it's wrong. They're going to tell you using humor in sales is not professional. They're going to tell you that showing up a little on okay is not okay. Um, and they're going to tell you you need to be enthusiastic and passionate, and that only makes you create more sales resistance. So hide the book from these people because they're miserable, and misery loves company. And like-minded entrepreneurs who have anxiety should not be hanging around with other like-minded entrepreneurs that have anxiety around selling. What they need to do is find someone that's been there, done it, and changed it. And I don't think it's going to be easy, some of the things, but when I tell people that prospecting is not about selling, they don't believe me. They say, well, yeah, if I'm calling someone, I'm trying to sell them something. I said, you're not. All you're trying to do is find out, are they emotionally curious about a problem you solve that they may have? You're not talking about a meeting. All you're doing, and if they're not, perfect, because there's 7 billion people in the world and you got to move on. Mm. And when I can get them to start thinking about this as not selling, and you're literally just trying to find people that may be curious to know a little bit more, and you're problem solving and not product pushing. And that comes out in the words you use, your tonality, and the way you behave. When I show them that, and then I remind them, by the way, that as much as prospecting sucks, because I don't really like prospecting. I've been doing it for 23 years. If you put me under a lie detector, it's going to say that, wow, he doesn't really love prospecting. I don't. But the consequence of not doing it is worse. And 65% of businesses are going to be out of business in three years because they believed a better website and a better logo and a better value proposition and a better mission statement was going to get them the business. So they got to get over the fact that selling is their professional and moral duty and it doesn't need to feel like selling. But it shouldn't feel like charity either because you will get used and abused and you'll get every info hog taking it. But if you bring your dog to the vet, they're not doing it for free. And if mm. you're going to diagnose somebody who has a problem, you should be charging for it. Mm. So part of it is head trash. And my advice to these people is avoid the sales incest Jewish communities because those people are going to fight tooth and nail on why some of these principles that I talk about don't make sense. And the point is, I would ask them, how are, they, how are you doing with sales right now? 
and they're doing terrible. So why would you listen to them? One, I'm, I'm sure you get asked this question quite a lot, considering your sort of like anti-sales, unselling approach to, to everything. Um, how do you balance, though? Like, do you ever work with people who go completely on the other end? Like, because I, I, we all know salespeople who are afraid to, like, even ask for the sale, right? Or ask for the meeting. Like, they just talk and talk, and then their conversation sort of ends. The person's ready to buy or ready to, pr- to progress to the next stage, but they don't do it. Um, how do you find that balance between actually, you know, unselling and being consultative and problem solving, but also having the ability to, to close the deal, so to speak? Yeah. So it's really, really simple. You take the close step out. There is no close. So in my on-selling methodology, the close does not exist. <laughs> so it's not a step to get anxiety about because if I had closing as the fifth step, they would be starting to think about that when they're in the fourth step and the mm. bead of sweat would stop, start dripping down their side. So you close at the beginning, which you bring up all the upfront objections up front. And instead of starting a meeting that no one knows where it's going, you make it very clear how this is going to work. Are you comfortable telling me no? Are you going to be offended if I tell you no? If we both say no to each other, if we both don't say no to each other by the end, does it make some sense to set aside time and talk about next steps? I mean, if you start out with just those three things, there is no closing because here's my close. So, David, I think I can probably help you based on what we talked about. What would you like to happen next? That's the invisible close right there. And. I ain't going to medical school. I ain't that smart, but that's my close. What would you like to happen next? And I am telling you now, my 20-year-old daughter who has never sold in her life, she can pull off that line. And she's not going to get stressed out that if she finally believes someone has a problem, you're dealing with the right person and they have a problem you can help. Can you just say this? What would you like to happen next? That's it. There is no close. So get rid of the close. The close is like, again, this is from the Glengarry, Glen Ross, Grant Cardone school of here's 80 different puppy dog closes, the Ben Franklin close. I mean, it, I mean, honest to God, the, the titles of the sales books. So I started to try to figure out how many sales books were written and my thumb got a cramp at like 22,000 sales books and the titles were like, you know, 10X selling, ninja selling. If you're not first, you're last. I mean, no wonder people are afraid of salespeople. Mm -hmm. So mine is all about how do I make someone feel more comfortable? But the one thing I do know is if I can make people feel comfortable on the inside, they're never going to make someone feel comfortable on the outside because they'll feel it. They'll, They'll feel your anxiety. So the first thing we got to do is get, we got to unlearn all those habits and we've got you to start trying some things in a safe place. And that's why role-playing, which is very hard for people, role-playing is the fastest way to learn. If I was ever going to do a course, which I don't think I will because I run a brokerage full-time, 
I probably wouldn't make someone sit through 108 modules of on-selling. I would probably create a gym, digital gym, where we just do reps all day and we, we role play. And we take real situations where, Dave, you could tell me, what were the three things this week that happened that put you in the back of your heels? And let's role play it. That's the only way to do it. But you got to feel comfortable. You don't want to be wasting that on good leads. You want to waste it on someone that you can fail in front of. Yeah. And for me, Benjamin Dennehy, I did a lot of role playing with him and I thought I was pretty good, but he, he took me to another level. Uh, but what, what did you do? Able, what did, what specifically that? did you do? Um, we did a lot of role playing, but um, he also really showed me that there's a difference between aggressive and assertive. And I always go back to think about these two dogs in my neighborhood when I was a kid. And there was this one little dog that we all loved. He was, I'm going to call him Chase because I don't want the parents of the dog to know. <laughs> Talk about the dog. So Chase, little red dog, a little, uh, little dog that every kid played with on the street, always wagging his tail. You could throw a ball to Chase a hundred times and he'd go get it every single time because he wanted a pat on the head. Then there was this other dog that wasn't, a pit bull. It wasn't, it was just a dog that was a little more detached. And let's call that dog Case, because I know that family too. And Case always hung around our dads in the neighborhood that were barbecuing because he knew that his target audience and he wasn't going to hang around us kids because he knew we would just kind of beat him out and throw balls and make him do weird things. And I think. I learned that Chase was kind of the way I used to sell. I used to just run after every lead that was there. I wanted a pat on the head. I wanted to be liked. I wanted to be a people pleaser. And the other dog, Case, was more indifferent, but it wasn't aggressive. It was just more direct. And one of the things that Benjamin taught me is, yeah, you got to get people emotional, but you got to find the courage to challenge the truth. Because again, you've got to understand people are afraid, even if my intentions are good, people are still afraid to be truthful to you. And what Benjamin really worked on with me is how do you be nurturing, nurturing and assertive without being aggressive? And how do I yeah. challenge the truth without offending someone and being rude? And to me, I think that's the best way that I've improved is I am now brave enough to bring up the objections up front. But as soon as someone says a yes too fast, David, it's troublesome. It's a red flag to me. A counterfeit yes is very real. So when I dig into it a little bit and I realize that this has been a problem for six years, I would probably challenge them and, and say, Okay, you've been dealing with this for six years. I mean, this seems more like a lifestyle than a glitch. Mm. Like, why now? And what have you tried over the last six years to kind of solve this on your own? Because working with me is expensive. Like, have you tried this? And what happens is when you subtly push away people for all the right reasons, not as a tactic, 
but for all the right reasons, because you're protecting your time, a weird thing happens. They actually fight more to defend their position. And they may say, no, it is a, it is a real problem. And I know it's been going on six years, but this is the first time that I'd have the authority and the funds to deal with it. So I want to get it done. And then you test that a little bit and say, okay, can I, and I don't mean to be rude here, but I'm trying to understand why you haven't tried this first. Well, I kind of did that. I just didn't want to tell you that. I was embarrassed. And you got to get people there. They got to be able to defend it. And um, to me, Benjamin taught me that assertive doesn't need to be aggressive. Aggressive is not my style. It's just not my style. And I think I was able to understand I could just be myself. And humor for me is a big way to diffuse tension inside my own body. And now I bring humor to the sales game because if you're not naturally funny, by the way, don't don't read the book and try to be funny. It's not going to work. Uh, but if you are a little off center like I am and you use humor, I actually think it makes you more likable and it, it makes you more of them. So, you know, when someone barks at me and says, you know, I hate dealing with insurance salespeople, I would probably just say, God, try hanging around them eight hours a day. You just got to deal with me for 30 seconds. And most people, nine out of 10 times, laugh at that. And mm. all I'm trying to do is lower the resistance. My whole goal is to actually make them feel more comfortable. And, but I've got to do it not with a gimmick of like, give me 27 seconds. I mean, that time is over. I've actually got to share something with them a trailer to the movie, not the movie, the trailer to the movie that gets them to kind of go, what do you mean by that? Or, huh? Even if it's skeptical, I just got to get them emotionally curious. But then I need to bring logic back and let them defend that I believe that they want to make this change. Because um, again, 70% of the time, they aren't a fit for me. So I want to lose faster. And when you tell someone to lose faster, it takes a lot of pressure off people. When I tell the people that I work with, I just want you to lose faster and we're going to celebrate fast nose. It's so weird that it actually makes them relax more. Yeah. There's a guy on my LinkedIn at the moment. I don't know if you follow him. Um, Julio. Uh, he's um... great guy. He's rolled to 4,000 rejections. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Beautiful guy. I'm actually chatting with him next week. We've become... As you and I did, you kind of meet over, you know, LinkedIn in the comments. I'm having a chat with him next week. How brave and courageous to actually celebrate 4,000 rejections and count them and learn from them. Uh, massive respect for that guy. I love it. I think it's great. Yeah, I had a good chat with him. He came on my podcast last week. It's, it's going to be out in the next few weeks or so. But um, yeah, he, he's got a really interesting approach because he uh he's from like i think he went and met yeah that, that's what he he went and actually he was really successful in recruitment and then um he ended up like thinking he could he was really good at sales like most recruiters i think do but the way you sell in recruitment is very different to how you sell more generally right exactly. um yeah and he's yeah he's he's really interesting but that's such a doing your cold calls like if you're anxious about that if you rather than sort of trying to judge yourself on 
or, or, or being worried about, oh my God, he's going to say no, he's going to say no. She's going to say no, she's going to say no. Yeah. You're like, oh yes, one more, one more rejection. <laughs> yeah. And it, the whole, it, it's funny, isn't it? How like a small mindset shift like that in sales can really de- help you deal with the anxiety of the job. I think he's come, he's come up with his own little tool to help him deal with it. Uh, Jerry Seinfeld used to use a calendar and he used to write a red mm. X every day. He uh, wrote a new joke and, you know, everyone's got to have their own system to deal with it. Um, I went through so many years where I was worried about payroll and, you know, making payroll. And it's hard to say to someone who's worried about making payroll to be detached from the outcome, like when you need to make the outcome. So you've got to find other ways to do it without just coming up with one of these flavor of the month, detached from the outcome things that doesn't really help people. Um, But I, I think, you know, the example you brought up, Everyone's got to find their way of dealing with it. For me, I had to see myself as a problem solver and not a product pusher because I wanted, you know, my dad who passed away in 2019, if he was a fly in the wall, would he like the way I sold today? Mm. And I just had to get to that thing to feel more proud of what I was doing for a living. And the ironic thing is when I started to do less, but better, I got more. And it was the strangest result of my whole life that how did this actually work? It's just so counterintuitive. And yeah, it is funny, isn't it? Like how once you start, I feel like, I feel like most salespeople have this quite a similar path in that they start off in the traditional route. They start off with push, 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 you know, um, super enthusiastic, you know, in your face and, always trying to get that outcome and completely attached to the outcome. And then o- over time, the good ones anyway, they sort of do what you did in that they start actually fit. Well, you, maybe it's like a confidence thing or like a, a control of your ego thing, or maybe you just like mature as you get older. Because I think for me, especially like I was so scared of giving them an out. I was actually taught, not to give people an out sure because it's like well they'll take it they'll always take it so why would you do like the the way i do cold calls now is is very much the 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 popular way you know um you know have you got you can hang up now give me 30 seconds etc etc yeah um and you're giving them an out early um but the way i was taught throughout the entire process was be very very careful with your the, the words you use because you you don't want to give them that option to hang up. You don't want to give them that option to not take the job or not accept, because yeah. if you do, they're always, um, and, 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 and then if they do as well, by the way, and this is like a, more of a culture thing, which hopefully with people like yourself, um, and people like, you know, Benjamin and all these other sales trainers that are, that are uh, becoming really popular is that we'll be able to change the culture. But when you've got that culture where your manager is like, punishing you for those who do back out of the process because they think the way they were taught they're like well you've lost the opportunity now that was your fault because you gave them an out i would never have done that do do you know what i mean uh i think it's again these are not bad people i even look at the worst 
pitch slaps I get on LinkedIn and the worst sales calls. And sometimes I'm tempted to rescue them because I know deep down inside these are mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters and good people. They're just in such a bad environment and they're under so much mm. pressure. Uh, they don't know any other way to do it. And my life is a tale of both of those. So I was thrown into a room and given two days of product training with, you know, bad coffee and donuts. And I became a product expert and I was a terrible seller. And I did okay, by the way, like you can be an average seller and still do okay, but man, you're not going to like the person looking at yourself every back in the mirror every morning. So I've been through that. It is a life sentence. It's not a good way to live, even if you're making money. Uh, but I don't blame it on the people. I think these are just good people. And unfortunately, sales is not treated like engineering or medicine. And people, as long as they don't drool over their shirt and they can get five words out, they're hired. And, mm. and the problem with entrepreneurs is even if they're afraid to sell, they don't know what to look for. So then they sell, they hire the salesperson that looks like the one on TV. And Hollywood. So they can't hire a person either because they're hiring the wrong salesperson because they don't know what it is to sell. <laughs> so mm. it's a vicious cycle for small business people, entrepreneurs who love what they do, can truly help the world, but they're hiding in the shadows. And honestly, when I met Seth Godin uh, for the first time, and I told you I sent a cold email to him, and, you know, he responded to me and he spoke at an event with me and waived his fee. I mean, it was incredible. The one thing he said off camera to me was, Kevin, who do you want to write the book for? And who do you want to help if you could do it for free? Like free. And I went, oh God, that changed my mind because I first started writing this book for the insurance people were more order takers and salespeople, and they were frustrated. When Seth Godin told me that, I said, I want to go back to the person I was, the business owner who scared shitless mm. to sell. <laughs> and he said, that's who you need to write the book for. And I shredded 116 pages. And I started again because of Seth Godin. And, um, you know, I don't hound him. I acknowledge in the book and I'm, you know, I've sent him the manuscript and, and stuff, but he helped me massively reframe who this book could be for. Cause he said, who would you do it if it was for free? And the truth is I want to help people who I know can help the world, but they're stuck at a kitchen table as a freelancer and they, they're doing every bit of research and they're doing a beautiful website and they're doing everything on Vistaprint, beautiful business cards. And they're afraid to do the one thing, which is selling. And they got such a negative stigmatism, they think it's beneath them to do it. And I'm saying you can do it without pretending to be someone else, and you can do it in a way that you can hold your head high. But it ain't going to be easy because it wasn't easy for me. And I don't use the word 10x or crush or conquer once in my book because it's not a sales book about conquering prospects. It's about conquering yourself. That's what this book's about. Mm. Yeah, no, it's great. It's great. I'm so excited to um, to see how it does and see the reaction. When's it out? November 30th. 
Oh, not long. Not long, no. And I don't have a lot of experience in books, so all I know is my book coaches over in the UK were very close. She puts it up on Amazon. It's there. Um, you know, I've got a couple of hundred books myself I'm going to have, and I'm going to send those to special people like you uh, around the world and um, send it to those four prospects who lied to me because they had to lie to me. They couldn't be truthful when I was on mute and I thought I hung up, but they're getting the first four copies. Not as a vengeful way of doing things because that was a turning point for my life. So I only caught them doing what everyone else was doing. And if you're not comfortable with salespeople, we all lie to salespeople. I still lie to salespeople, especially when they show up like salespeople. So they're getting the first four copies of my book, but you'll be somewhere in that, David, I promise. I appreciate it. That's going to be really interesting. Um, do you like, uh, have you like tracked them down? Do they know they're getting this or? I know where they are. Yeah. They have no idea that, I mean, you got to understand they have no idea what they did and they're not yeah. bad humans. They, they knew that I would never take no and I would hound them the rest of their lives. The 12, 2012 version of me. Uh, no, I'm just going to probably say something vague like, you know, I know it's been over a decade, but uh, I just thought you'd enjoy this copy. And there's a little story in it that may have you in it. You just don't know it. <laughs> yeah. And thank you for giving me – there's a cough medicine in Canada called Buckley's is the brand. And it tastes terrible. And they took that weakness and the tagline is it tastes awful and it works. And for me, 2012, April 18th, these four people, it, it tasted awful, but it made me a better version of me. And I hope no one has to go through what I went through uh, back then, but this book is the before and after picture. And I'm giving you the stuff that worked for me, and I've left out all the bad things that I fell flat on my face, because there's lots of Costanzas. There was much more than 14. There was some... There were some colossal bad Costanzas I tried. Um, so I just hope it helps some people that were the version of me. Yeah. No, it's, I'm super excited to read it. Honestly, I've been following your content for a long time, which is obviously why we ended up speaking. And um, you, you, you initially got me curious because I was like, what is this guy talking about? Like unselling. Like I thought you were like a, a person who hated salespeople or something. And... Yeah. Um, I suppose that there there is a sort of slight aspect to that. So but... I did my job. I got you emotionally curious. That's all I wanted to do. Yeah, this is what happens. I was I was I honestly can't remember how I came across you, but um, I saw the unselling thing, and then I was like, okay, you've got my attention. Followed your stuff for quite a while, and I know we we had a little back and forth on LinkedIn for a while, but um, yeah, no, I'm 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 really looking forward to the to to unselling um, the book because it is called unselling, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Just like the shirt. Yeah. Um, but you know what's funny? The... Even if it doesn't, David, here's the thing. My editor who helped me take this from 75,000 words to 60 and still kept all my weird personality in it. I think she knew how hard it was for me to write this book. Uh, there's a reason 2% of people actually write a book. It is hell at times and very lonely. She actually sent me this in the mail i think i showed you so if nothing else in life even if the book doesn't do well 
I have my own bobblehead and my God, I think I've made it. If you got your own bobblehead and you know, the forehead is very, they got it perfect. It's like, that's amazing. It's so accurate. It's very accurate. So you know what? Thank you, editor. I appreciate it, Nicole. It's a great gift. And, uh, He's in better shape than me, but the rest of it's pretty well the same. That's great. No, I was just going to say, it's um, I, what I'm excited about is it just seems so different like than the average sales book because a lot of them can seem quite samey and it's sort of like regurgitated okay. and yeah. repackaged stuff from other books. But um, from the sounds of it, the way you've structured it, it's uh, it seems very different, which is great. So... Um, yeah, that's awesome. Where where can people order it then? Um, how can people get hold of it? Um, I'll probably share it inside my own community first. So if you go to kevincasey.ca, not .com, .ca, welcome to Canada. I couldn't get .com. Someone wants like $8,000 for that. It's a Kevin Casey. Right. And he won't call me back. Like I would pay 2000 If he's watching this, I'll give you 2000 for kevincasey.com, but he won't even get back to me. Uh, so kevincasey.ca. Um, I'll probably share inside that community first. It'll be on Amazon. You know, I'm not, I don't have any plans. I, I run a brokerage of 90 people full time. I'm, I'm not on a book tour. Uh, you won't see me at Costco doing book signings. Amazon is a way to do it, I guess. And, uh, you know, for the people like you who have been nice enough to invite me into your world, you're going to get your own copy along with a couple of surprises. So, um, that's how you can find it. So thank you for inviting me on. I appreciate it. Well, if you don't promote it, I'm, uh, I'm sure many of us, uh, in your, in your network will. So yeah, super excited to, um, to have that come out. Um, other than that, like, you know, thanks so much for, for coming on, mate. It's, it's been, it's been a really interesting chat. Um, if people want to like connect with you, is, is it LinkedIn the best or any, any other places? I think LinkedIn, you know, LinkedIn's the best um, way to find me. I'm very active there. I don't take over multiple platforms. You won't find me on Twitter very active. So it's, I don't have time. I'm stingy with my time now, right? So uh, part of this is understanding time is the one thing you can't get back. So LinkedIn, Amazon. Um, and if the book doesn't work for you, like I say this in the book and my editor did not want me to do this. They try to talk me out of it. If someone reads this book and it just, it's, they hate it. I don't want to see your receipt. Just send me a picture of the book that you hate and I'll send your money back. I really don't care. I want it to help people. And, you know, if someone wants the $19.95 that bad, they need it more than I do. But I wanted to put that in the book because I really want this to help people. But it's not for everyone. and. If someone that doesn't want to go through an unconventional approach and they just want to sell more shit, I'll give you your money back. Interesting. Yeah, it could I'm, cost me I, a lot of money. I, it could be the dumbest move I ever made, but hey, not every Costanza very, works. So maybe this will be maybe this will be Costanza number twenty eight that didn't work. Maybe yeah. refund. I don't care. <laughs> That's, I'm sure. It'll be, I'm sure it'll be great, mate. Um, but yeah, thanks so much for, for coming on, Kevin. It's, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, I'll put all the links and, and stuff. You've got a newsletter as well, right? Yeah. My newsletter is not a newsletter. I just do these things called fix and six, which are every Sunday. 
you'll get a six minute video tackling a very specific subject. And sometimes I go eight minutes because I can't stop. So the fix and six is not always accurate. And if you want to end up subscribed because I'm too long, that's okay. But every Sunday you get it. It's free. It's at kevincasey.ca. Uh, so I didn't do a newsletter. I'm trying to just do more video stuff like this. It's any, I'm getting lazy writing. I don't want to write anymore now. I've written a goddamn book. I bet. No. 5 a.m. to 7 a.m. Yeah, it's messed up my sleep pattern. I haven't uh, – now I wake up at 4.30 or 5 every day still. So I'm trying to get back. But for 700 days every day, I did do this. And it was uh, – I've probably written three books. I just got it down to one book. But it will never be a second book. I promise you there is no sequel. Not ever. We'll see. Um, <laughs> we'll see. I, <laughs> you heard it here. There is not going to be a second book ever. Yeah. <laughs> awesome, mate. No, thanks. Thanks Thank so much. I'll put all the links and and everything in um in the description and everything, so they can sub to your newsletter, connect you on LinkedIn, and obviously um order the book. And yeah, thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, David. Thanks, man. It was great talking to you. And get the frosted tips back. You're starting to look too much like me. Oh.